Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Okay, let's see if I can do this. Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the vox populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent vermin, vanguarding vice and through shaping the violent, vicious and voracious violation of volition. The only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta held as a votive, not in vain, for the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. Verily, this vichoise of verbiage veers most verbose, so let me simply add that it is my very good honour to meet you. <laughs> Damn it! I nearly had it! And action! Verily, this vichoise of verbiage veers most verbose, so let me simply add that it is my very good honour to meet you, and you may call me Verbal Diorama. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 67, V for Vendetta. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. So I plan episodes roughly about six months in advance, which seems like a really long time. Uh, and, and episodes can kind of come and go, but I really wanted to do V for Vendetta. And I literally chose V for Vendetta purely because... This episode is due out on the 5th of November. So I thought, well, that's perfect. And that was obviously months and months ago. Uh, but Viva Vendetta feels so prescient to right now that it, it's almost scary, actually. Uh, uh, by the way, just to sort of add, V wears a mask and so should you. Maybe not a Guy Fawkes mask, but it is still so important to protect each other from covid uh, or if you're in the V for Vendetta universe, the St. Mary's virus. Um, and additionally, as this episode is being recorded, the US is literally just about to elect its new president. Uh, so the results are currently unknown, um, but it feels like the fear and general unrest shown in V for Vendetta is so spookily similar to everything that's happening right now in the world. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Do the right thing, America. I really hope you do. So I recently released two episodes during the week of Halloween. One was planned and one was kind of not so planned. Uh, it was kind of a bit of a last minute thing. Um, but I really just wanted to thank everyone who took the time. Thank everyone who listened to Ghostbusters 2016 and Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Um, the underlying theme of women saving the world was something that I really wanted to highlight and the fact that they are genuinely both such underrated uh, and undervalued treasures. Uh, Ghostbusters obviously featured a brilliant special guest in Simon Brew from Film Stories. Uh, he is the final guest of the podcast for this year. Probably, probably the final guest ever <laughs> after his attempt to sabotage that episode. Um, 
But it was brilliant to have him on. I had a complete blast with him. And the more I think about Ghostbusters, the more I like it. Uh, and just a quick note, I know not many people have actually seen Demon Knight. So I'll be completely honest. Um, and as I'm recording, it literally only came out the day before yesterday. So um, I haven't had any messages about the fact that people enjoyed Demon Knight. But I loved doing that episode so much. Um, please go and find and watch Demon Knight because it's so much fun. And it is such an important 90s horror movie for so many reasons. But I have two words for you. Billy Zane. I mean, <laughs> Billy Zane. Yeah, Billy Zane, you guys. Um, and so I guess it's time to go into the Vendetta. So remember, remember the 5th of November. Do you know why you're here, Evie Hammond? You're being formally charged with treason, terrorism and sedition, the penalty for which is death by firing squad. You have one chance, and only one chance, to save your life. You must tell us the identity or whereabouts of codename V. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Yes. Are you ready to cooperate? No. Excuse me, miss. I'm sorry. Not yet, you're not. But you will be. The only verdict is vengeance. A vendetta. If our own government was responsible for the deaths of 100,000 people, would you really want to know? You're getting back at them for what they did to you. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government. I want everyone to remember why they need us. I wish I wasn't afraid all the time. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. This is exactly what he wants. Chaos. Britain is recovering from a pandemic and ran by a fascist government who came into power by stoking fear and prejudice. Curfews are in effect and strict rules must be followed by all citizens. In the midst of all this chaos, one man, known only by the name V, dares to stand up to the government and is labelled a terrorist. One night, V rescues Evie Hammond, a mild-mannered young woman with activist links, and an unlikely bond between the two emerges, which results in Evie becoming V's ally. Though V may be charismatic and have a passion for justice, he is also bitter, twisted and had his own personal hatred of the government for creating him. As November the 5th, the day V says he and those who will follow him will stand up to the government once and for all approaches, Detective Finch becomes more and more determined to uncover the truth about V. However, his search leads him to ask the question whether or not he is on the right side. So we'll quickly run through the cast of this movie. We have Natalie Portman as Evie Hammond, Hugo Weaving as V, Stephen Ray as Chief Inspector Finch, Stephen Fry as Gordon Dietrich, John Hurt as Adam Sutler, and Tim Piggott-Smith as Peter Creedy. It was written by Lana and Lily Wachowski uh, as the Wachowskis. It's based on V for Vendetta by Alan Moore and David Lloyd, and it was directed by James McTeague. And I'm going to start this episode by saying... I am not very good with politics. I am not a political scholar. I am not a scholar of anything, really. Uh, so, but where politics are concerned, I know a limited amount. Uh, and I'm really not going to go into the politics of Eva Vendetta in great detail because I always feel like it would be wrong of me to pretend that I completely understand political points of view. When frankly, I don't. Uh, I'm going to try my best with the limited knowledge that I do have and I kind of feel like uh, at this moment I probably need to apologise and say I'm really sorry that I don't know more about politics. So the story of V for Vendetta starts with the original graphic novel which was written by Alan Moore and illustrated by David Lloyd published in 1982 as an ongoing serial in Warrior before they went bust and then it was published as a limited series by DC Comics and then Vertigo Comics. So V for Vendetta uh, the original graphic novel was set in the years 1997 and 1998 
and it was influenced by and a response to the political climate in 1980s Britain, the Margaret Thatcher years, uh, and tells of how a fascist government could rise post-nuclear war as a fictional political party called Norsefire, which is a Nordic supremacist, neo-fascist, Christo-fascistic and homophobic political party who exterminates opponents in concentration camps and rules as a police state. Alan Moore remarked that his comic was about anarchy and fascism and that it had been remade for this movie as American neoconservatism versus American liberalism. But we're going to come back to Alan Moore in a bit because let's just say he is not the biggest fan of this movie or literally any movie of any adaptation uh, of any of his graphic novels. So the script for V for Vendetta was actually written way before the Wachowski's breakout movie and previous episode of this very podcast, The Matrix, which is episode 14. But the project started way back in 1988 when producer Joel Silver purchased the rights to two of Alan Moore's works, Watchmen, which was considered unfilmable, but that would eventually be made into a movie in 2009 directed by Zack Snyder and also V for Vendetta. Uh, Co-writer of Roadhouse, Hilary Henken, was hired to write a first draft screenplay. The so-called Henken script uh, is available online and it was written in around 1990 to 1991 and was quite far removed from the original graphic novel. It included a difference in tone. It was more of a hybrid of kind of a drama or satire. It can't really make up its mind what it is. The Fingermen are genetically engineered half-man, half-goat creatures. Norsefire are responsible for Evie's torture. And the Fingers HQ is shaped like a finger. Most importantly, it tries to humanise V to, to give him a backstory. And it's also actually revealed that he is Evie's father. So the most important thing that we can take from this is that V's mask is removed. And obviously in this movie, V's mask is never removed. Uh, we never actually see his face. The Wachowskis adaptation more closely followed the graphic novel when they originally wrote it in the mid-90s, but then went on to work on The Matrix. During post-production of The Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions, they revisited their V for Vendetta screenplay in that current political climate at the time. They wanted to condense and modernise the story while preserving the themes and integrity. They offered the director's role to James McTeague, first assistant director on The Matrix trilogy, and also Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, where he also worked with Natalie Portman. And V for Vendetta became James McTeague's directorial debut. Another James, James Purefoy, would win the role of V and do several weeks of filming and then go on to leave. Some of his filmed material remains in the movie. All those scenes with James Purefoy never had to be refilmed because obviously the character wears a mask. Hugo Weaving did still dub the voice in post-production. He actually dubbed the whole thing um, in post-production. Rumours for Purefoy's leaving include that he was fired, which he denies, as well as the fact that wearing the mask gave him issues, which he also denies. He actually claims it was merely creative differences which would lead him to leave the project. Hugo Weaving, who worked with the Wachowskis on the Matrix trilogy, would take up the physical and voice role of V and felt comfortable with a mask. Uh, despite it muffling his voice because he had mask training at drama school. And really, the fact that V never doesn't feel like a complete character, despite no facial expressions, is actually genuinely a revelation in this movie uh, because the physical performance that Hugo Weaving gives is so enticing and so dramatic and so expressive that he never needs to show his face. Natalie Portman, who was 24 during filming, wasn't the only actor up for the part of Evie. Rumoured considerations included Bryce Dallas Howard, Scarlett Johansson and Kira Knightley, who coincidentally also worked with Portman as Padme Amidala's decoy in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. She also did have her head shaved, although technically not completely shaved, as she has a few millimetres of hair left, so it's more of a buzz cut. Uh, as they obviously use clippers. Um, that had to be done in one take, obviously, because it was her genuine hair. And a professional barber played the part of V, playing the part of the government official. Uh, and I'll be completely honest, it's disgusting, really, that Natalie Portman can look just as gorgeous with a shaved head as she does with her normal hair. Natalie Portman remains one of the most beautiful women to ever exist in the whole world, probably. Um, so filming of Viva Vendetta began in March 2005 and finished in June 2005. 
It was filmed in Babelsberg Studios in Berlin and also on location in London. And filming a movie with fascist themes in Berlin kind of didn't go unnoticed by the cast, uh, especially John Hurt, who played Adam Suttler. Scenes in the London Underground were filmed at the unused Oldwich Tube Station. And for the final scene set in Westminster, unparalleled access was given to the production. Like access that had never, ever been seen before. So the area from Trafalgar Square and Whitehall up to Parliament and Big Ben was closed for three nights for filming from midnight to 5am. Background checks had to be done on every actor that you see on screen, every extra, who carried a weapon of some sort. Obviously all the weapons were fake, but still background checks had to be done. All of the weapons, the fake weapons, were all barcoded um, so that no one could take anything home. Nothing was unaccounted for. Um, and the scene also used real tanks as well. It was the first time the area had ever been closed to accommodate filming. It actually took nine months of negotiations with 14 different government agencies and departments to get this unprecedented access. This was despite uh, the then Prime Minister Tony Blair's son Ewan being a runner on the production because the media really latched onto this uh, and it was location manager Nicholas Daubeny who vehemently denied the reports because it was his team who had to actually get all of this permission uh, and basically said it didn't matter who whose son was working on the production it was unlikely that it would be granted just because Ewan Blair was working on it. Uh, it's worth noting as well that the extensive models that had to be made replicas of Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament, which were blown up, uh, were very extensively detailed models. It's very similar to the, the scenes in Independence Day with the model of the White House being blown up. Still looks excellent to this day. And so do the scenes in V for Vendetta. It would actually be the final film of cinematographer Adrian Biddle. He died of a heart attack four days prior to the debut of the movie. Biddle was also the cinematographer for other Verbal Diorama episodes, The Princess Bride, Willow and The Mummy, uh, as well as Thelma and Louise, which he was nominated for an Oscar and BAFTA for Best Cinematography. Uh, so it's kind of sad, actually, that he never got to see this movie come out um, because it is a beautiful looking movie. It's, it's a very dark and dreary looking movie, um, but it's supposed to be because this is a dystopian future. No matter, no matter how much it feels like real life, it is supposed to be a dystopian future. Alan Moore would read the Wachowski script and go on to disassociate himself from the adaptation, as he'd also done with the movie version of From Hell in 2001 and the movie version of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in 2003, which coincidentally was the final live action acting role for the legendary Sean Connery, who passed away a couple of days ago. Rest in peace, Sir Sean Connery. You genuinely are one of the greats. Alan Moore would go on to end his working relationship with DC Comics after its parent company, Warner Brothers, failed to attract statements citing Moore's alleged support and endorsement of V for Vendetta. Rumour had it, that Lana Wachowski had talked with Alan Moore about the upcoming movie and that Moore was, and I quote, very excited about what Lana had to say and that he was enthusiastic and encouraging to producer Joel Silver. Uh, he has vehemently denied that he's ever said this uh, and has refused to be credited for any of his works going forward and he announced he would not allow his name to be used in any future film adaptation of works that he has since sold. Uh, because he does not sell his works anymore. It's worth mentioning that illustrator David Lloyd supports this adaptation and after seeing it for the first time, declared it to be a fantastic representation of the work that they did. He also found it difficult to sympathise with Alan Moore's protests after they agreed to sell the rights to make these movies. Anyway, David Lloyd's iconic images of the Guy Fawkes mask have kind of reverberated through society because it's now the image of the hacktivist group Anonymous. Uh, David Lloyd actually is happy to see the mask used as this brand to protest tyranny and oppression. And it's really rare actually for a movie prop, essentially, to remain so ingrained in modern culture and society. Everyone knows the Guy Fawkes mask, not necessarily from this movie, but from protests around the world. Uh, and as V, the character, doesn't stand for the man behind the mask, nor does the use of the mask in real life. It's a symbol. It's an idea. At the end of the movie, a collective group of people in masks march on Parliament. Uh, they're unarmed, facing off against the armed forces. They're silent. 
It's a silent, anonymous collective of people facing off against tyranny. It's one of the many reasons, I think, that this movie still resonates today. And there are a lot of reasons. Um, And it feels more important today than it ever has felt. It, It feels more important today than it felt in 2006, for definite. Um, And interestingly, cinemas are still showing it today. The masks themselves, they're made by Ruby's Costume Company, and they sell over 100,000 of these masks a year worldwide. And ironically, although the wearers might want to essentially stick one to corporations like Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers still make incredible profits off the sale of these masks, even if they only made $1 a year off these masks. That's still (laughs) $100,000 that's going into the pocket of Warner Brothers. Here in Britain, we grow up with the story of Guy Fawkes. Uh, On the 5th of November, guys, uh, which are uh, normally made out of tights or clothing, and you basically stuff it with newspaper. You can make like a paper mache head, but they're burned as effigies, uh, essentially, on bonfire night, which is the 5th of November. And people let off fireworks commemorating the plot that he and his comrades, because it's it wasn't just Fawkes. He was just the scapegoat. I'm going to come into that in a minute because I want to go through the story of Guy Fawkes, because I think it's really important to know the story of Guy Fawkes, especially for those people who aren't British and don't know the story of Guy Fawkes. Uh, he is he was the scapegoat. And obviously these people, they failed to execute this plot in 1605. So the rhyme... Remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I see of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Is taught in schools, or at least it was when I was a kid. We learned all about Guy Fawkes at school. He's kind of seen as the ultimate villain. <laughs> and there's been a lot of villains in British history. Um, but he's seen as a villain. Uh, and because I really, really love history, especially the history of Britain, Uh, mainly because, let's be honest, everything's happened in Britain. (laughs) Literally everything you can think of. I want to just quickly go through the story of the gunpowder plot because I think it's really important if you're watching this movie not necessarily to know the story of the gunpowder plot but to know the story of how it happened and why it happened. The gunpowder plot, it was actually a failed assassination attempt of King James I and was led by a guy called Robert Catesby not Guy Fawkes, as I said, he was the scapegoat. So uh, it was basically a team of men. They were provincial English Catholics. And after King Henry VIII took control of the church and became the head of his own church uh, in the English Reformation, the English Reformation took place between 1533 and 1540. And at the time, religious tension was swelling uh, and English Catholics were persecuted for their beliefs. Uh, and the Elizabethan religious settlement required anyone appointed to public office to swear allegiance to the Church of England uh, and the monarch. At that time uh, was Elizabeth I, who was obviously King Henry VIII's daughter, but she had inherited the throne from her sister Mary I in 1558. So during these times, Catholic churches were burned down and anyone who continued to practice the Catholic faith faced the threat of torture or even execution. Catholic priests and members of the Catholic Church continued to practice Catholicism in secret. They even went as far as to hide in walls and they built secret rooms in their homes. Basically, everyone had to become Church of England. You were not allowed to be Catholic, you had to be Church of England. So they wanted to ensure compliance. Uh, Fast forward 50 years or so and King James I was now on the throne. And though he tolerated Catholics, there was no sign that he would abolish the religious persecution of the Catholic faith. And so a group of Catholics led by Robert Catesby, including Thomas Winter, Thomas Percy, John Wright, Robert Keyes, Thomas Bates, Robert Winter, John Grant and Christopher Wright, along with Guy Fawkes, conspired to blow up the Houses of Parliament on the 5th of November 1605. This was because this was the day of a state opening of Parliament and the King, Lords and Commons would all be present. The plot was discovered by an anonymous letter to Lord Monteagle, who was a Catholic, warning him to not attend Parliament that day. Guy Fawkes is the name that we know because he was the one who was found underground in the tunnels under Parliament with the gunpowder. All the co-conspirators except Robert Winter were arrested and tortured, 
before being sentenced to death by hanging, drawing and quartering for treason. An Act of Parliament passed in 1606 to appoint the 5th of November each year as a day of thanksgiving for the joyful day of deliverance, which remained in force until 1859. So it's not a law for people to let off fireworks and burn effigies anymore, but it is a custom. It's something that British people do, uh, mostly now uh, in large group events, although actually no, not now because of coronavirus, but usually it would be a large community group event um but when i was a kid we just used to let off fireworks in the garden uh you don't really do that so much anymore it's kind of more frowned upon nowadays and so i thought that was a really interesting and important thing to go into because although guy fawkes is the face he's not the person and i think that speaks to viva vendetta so much the original graphic novel, uh, V for Vendetta, differs fundamentally from the movie. It's gone from a response to Thatcherism and a conflict between fascism and anarchism to an American-centric conflict between liberalism and neoconservatism, with specific references to racial purity removed. Uh, the graphic novel's dictatorial government were, were elected legally, whereas in the movie, the St Mary's virus is a biological weapon engineered by the Norse Fire Party and released in key areas to gain control over the country, to gain power and keep power by exerting this control and spreading fear. It's worth stating that obviously Viva Medetta feels very timely in the wake of a pandemic and civil unrest uh, with racism, homophobia and transphobia still deeply rooted in some factions of society. But there is a difference between V's violent retribution and the overwhelmingly peaceful protests of recent months. The graphic novel version of V is ruthless and brutal. He's actually tamed somewhat in the movie and turned into a romantic hero of sorts for Evie. That doesn't mean he doesn't kill indiscriminately, though. He literally has no plans beyond his endgame. Uh, so he knows what he wants to do and he knows how he's going to get there. And that's literally it. Um, what the movie does with V is interesting in that, to all intents and purposes, he is a terrorist. And yet he's framed as this Edmond Dantes, like a dashing hero, fighter for the greater good through his terrorism. Because although he is the terrorist, he's the one showing the people that they can take down corrupt governments. It feels like this movie should be massively controversial. It kind of never has been. Uh, I mean, this was despite a protest by the New York Metro Alliance of Anarchists on its release. Uh, but that was mainly due to the film allegedly watering down the original message um, because they felt that the original message of the story uh, was removed in favour of violence and special effects. On the most part, this movie has never really been deemed controversial um, because this was obviously a post 9-11 world. The movie essentially frames this, that Islamophobia is rampant, uh, the Quran is shown and depicted as being contraband, uh, basically enough for you to get arrested for, at the very least. Um, and it's applied that literally, unless you are straight, cisgendered, white and Christian, that you are persecuted in some way. Uh, and this movie is overwhelmingly white for a reason with Adam Sutler, who was actually renamed uh, because in the graphic novel he's called Adam Susan. That's presumably a nod to the name Adolf Hitler, because if you think Adam Sutler, Adolf Hitler, uh, it's quite similar. Um, and obviously Adam Sutler is essentially a racial purist, uh, and Norse fire, just like the Nazis, is an Aryanist regime. So they are all about white people, blonde hair, blue eyes. That That is what the Nazis wanted. And that is exactly what Norsefire want as well. This movie touches on quite a lot of things, uh, additional to the obvious kind of political things that it talks about. It obviously also talks about things like paedophile priests, uh, state-sanctioned torture, bioterrorism, obviously, and, and also phone tapping as well. And these are all things that have happened or come out in recent years. And they're all included in this movie. I mean, I've not really asked any priests, I've got to be honest. But it feels like most agree that this movie is actually good. Um, like, it's not free from criticism. Uh, and I've got my own criticisms about this movie. But on the whole, it feels like this movie is not only prescient and thought-provoking, 
that's still so important and unique, actually, in the field of filmmaking. Genuinely, I don't know of anything like it. And it feels like this movie now is one that will continue to kind of improve with age, you know, in the public consciousness. It feels so much like this movie was predicting the future. And how did we not know? How did we not see certain things that have happened in the world when it was right here in this movie? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, things that this movie does really well. It's been praised for its depictions of gay people uh, because obviously gay people are heavily persecuted in the movie uh, with particular praise on the character of Valerie, which is such a beautiful little story within a story. And it always makes me so emotional to hear Valerie's story about all, literally all she was doing was living her life and loving the person that she was with. And that got her arrested and it got her tortured. And the sad thing is, is that that is still happening in some parts of the world. You know, you're, you're persecuted for who you love. And the themes in this movie, they do, they go so deep. It's not a movie that is superficial in what it's talking about. It talks about very deep, very important topics. It does talk about them lightly in a sense that this is a movie. It's not a documentary but every time I watch this movie it just makes me think even more about society what are we doing why are we still persecuting people for being gay or for being trans why do we care who people love why do we care what gender someone is it doesn't matter it genuinely doesn't uh oh sorry I'm, I'm kind of going off on one a little bit but it, a movie like this really makes you think what's important there's just so much more going on in the world that we need to focus on. And I feel like so many factions of society are focusing on the wrong thing. They're focusing on the hatred rather than focusing on the love. The other thing that fascinates me actually about this movie, just kind of coming off that subject completely, um, China. Moving to China. Because obviously why wouldn't I move to China after talking about Valerie? China has very strict, it's kind of notorious for its censorship laws. And Viva Vendetta was aired completely uncensored in China. I want to talk a little bit about V, in a sense that V is a very complex character. I don't think he's necessarily portrayed as complex as the character could be. But I think it's important that V isn't the hero of the story and he's, he's also not the villain of the story either, uh, even though technically he is a terrorist. Um, he is a man. We know that he's a man. But he also isn't a man because he has no face. He has no identity. V is a symbol. Um, v is the idea. Uh, and it would be very easy for the movie to invent an identity for V. Uh, I mentioned earlier the Hilary Henkin script uh, where V was obviously given an identity and it turned out that the identity was of Evie's father um, but I think that it was important for V to not have an identity a lot of the time a character who is supposed to be an idea or a symbol is given an identity especially in Hollywood films because it's almost like you can't have a character who we don't know who he is and I feel like that's done for empathy reasons uh, we do find out a little bit about V's past as a test subject. And this is kind of the movie's version of Guantanamo Bay, which is obviously, again, uh, something that is still so raw for a lot of people. Um, and that's kind of explored. But we know nothing about the man that he was. Just that he was a man, but he's now kind of forever scarred, literally and figuratively, uh, and motivated purely by revenge. He enacts his revenge on this dictatorial corrupt government, but a government that was voted into power by its people. And the people should have known better. Let's be honest. In this world, in Viva Vendetta, the people should have known better. V inspires the people to kind of take a look at their lives, um, to see what has actually happened to this world and to do something to change it. And it's 
again, it's something that we can all do, you know, make change, make the world a better place, see what our leaders are doing and vote for change. Uh, and I think that's really important. It's a really important message that V for Vendetta tells us is not that V's the bad guy or the good guy or that the government's the bad guy or good guy, even though technically they both are simultaneously good and simultaneously bad. But really the reason why all of this has happened is complacency. That people were just too scared to make a change. So they went for the easy option. And I think sometimes... You just have to go make a change. Um, I think that's really important, especially now. Moving on to Evie, because uh, I feel like I've talked about V quite a lot. And V is kind of the standout character. Evie, Evie's character growth uh, is quite interesting in this movie in that she feels quite a lot of fear at the start uh, and then is essentially reborn in a kind of a mirror to how V is reborn through the fire Evie is reborn through the rain. Uh, and that's quite an interesting kind of allegory, I think. So Evie was originally 16 years old in the graphic novel. It's quite an interesting take to have Natalie Portman uh, play this character because her breakout role was in a movie called Leon. In America, it was released as The Professional. Over here, it's called Leon. And her character, Matilda, is essentially taken under the wing of a much older man who grooms her as her protege so it's and I have to say as well uh, I do like Natalie Portman a lot I think she is pretty much excellent actually in most things I've seen her in I find her accent quite questionable it kind of slips occasionally Natalie Portman gets first billing in this movie and I think that's quite important for any woman to have top billing uh, in a movie like this and overall I think she's really good I don't know if I've made this clear, I really do like this movie a lot. I think that's mainly down to the character of V and I think how V progresses. But without Evie and without Natalie Portman, this movie wouldn't work. Um, so, yeah, I do quite like Natalie Portman. Um, just to talk about the V domino scene, because it's one of my favourites, actually. I think it's such a beautiful shot. Uh, so it took 200 hours to build the dominoes. Uh, it was four professional domino assemblers and it was a total of 22,000 dominoes. So basically, you would not want to get that take wrong, would you? Because you'd have to put it all back together again. And as I said earlier, I do have a few issues with this movie. Uh, and to be fair, any movie that's supposedly set in Britain but written by Americans. Because there are certain things, there are certain terminologies that differ between uh, English English and American English. Um, so, for example, we don't call lifts elevators. We would call them a lift. We don't call levers levers. When Chief Inspector Finch tells Evie to step away from the lever, nah, that wouldn't happen. It would be lever. Um, and the biggest thing, the biggest thing that really dates this movie for me uh, is the cars. And that is because in this movie, all of the cars are a particular brand of car. Uh, the brand is Rover, uh, and Rover collapsed quite famously and largely in 2005. So the product placement of a Rover in a 2006 movie, it just, it feels so weird that every car is a Rover. These particular Rovers, the Rover 75, um, yeah, it's, it's really weird to see Rovers. I also question the torture scenes. It's made very clear that it was V who was torturing Evie. But in several key scenes during the torture, there are two people. And I realised that this was done to make the audience think that Evie was being held by the government. But it actually, with hindsight, doesn't make much sense. Apart from these very tiny indiscretions, I feel, I feel this movie so much. And I loved it the first moment I saw it. And that's probably mainly due to these kind of incredible high action stunts and its very Matrix-esque feel. But I love the kind of gritty, dark and stylized violence. I love how much it makes me think. How I come away from every viewing with a new idea. Uh, and ideas, they're bulletproof. I come away with reinforced viewpoints that we should ensure that the world never ends up this way. I love how I associate with Evie, you know, despite, <laughs> despite the questionable accent. Um, and 
how much you end up rooting for V. Uh, and maybe it's just the charming bad boy trope still does it for me. I don't know. Uh, I'm not even sorry about that. Uh, even though he's a guy in a mask, I'm not sorry. And I think it kind of comes down to me that it just kind of comments to what brilliant writers the Wachowskis can be. And when they're given material that's so rich and exhilarating and troubling and thought-provoking, you kind of have to give credit to Alan Moore here. And I know he hates being given credit, but I'm going to do it. Because without his source material, this would not be as good. Uh, and I think the Wachowskis giving it this contemporary setting that everyone can understand and relate to and appreciate was quite frankly, a genius idea, because this movie would not resonate if it was set in the 80s. It just wouldn't. Sometimes amending source material is a bad idea, but I think the Wachowskis nailed it with this. Um, I've often spoken of my complete admiration for Lana and Lily Wachowski as writers and as filmmakers, because they have these lofty ambitions. Uh, they never settle for what's easy to make. They aspire to create worlds. Um, and I'll be honest, many of their more recent attempts have kind of fallen a bit flat. I feel like we still underestimate the Wachowskis and we shouldn't because I think they are genuinely some of the most innovative filmmakers that are out there. While they didn't choose to direct this movie, it still feels like a Wachowski movie. Uh, and I think that kind of association to the name, I think it really benefits from having them involved. It is actually a genuine shame that Alan Moore refuses to watch or be associated with this because it's really good actually one thing that i like to do is i like to do something called the obligatory keanu reference and this is where i like to link a movie that i'm featuring with keanu reeves and this is so easy this has actually got two obvious ones so keanu obviously worked with lana and lily wachowski on the matrix movies uh the links to the matrix are obvious um they don't stop there chad stahelski who was a stunt coordinator on The Matrix and also directed the John Wick movies, also serves as the stunt double for V uh, in the fire scene, where he did genuinely walk through fire. He was covered in a special fire retardant gel and he only wore a thong. V for Vendetta was originally set for a 5th of November 2005 release, but due to delays in post-production on visual effects, it was pushed back to the 17th of March 2006. It was speculated that the delay was caused in part by terrorist bombings in London on the 7th of July 2005 and a second failed attempt on the 21st of July 2005 that both targeted the London underground system and the bus network. More than 700 people were injured and 52 people were killed in that first attack. Thankfully, in the second attack, only the detonators of the bombs exploded. The producers denied that this was the cause of the delay and it's just... Uh, sad and terrifying coincidence uh and these are the times that we still live in unfortunately so the movie had a budget of 54 million dollars and as i said it was released on the 17th of march 2006 in the us it came in at number one at the us box office and it ended up making 132.5 million dollars worldwide so that was a nice little profit moving over to some social media comments on twitter we have at Derek Jones 198 this is Derek from The Midnight Myth. He said, Social contract theory with Kubrick-esque ultraviolence in a post-9-11 dystopian social commentary. Yeah, I love this movie. At Cap Understands said, Brilliant movie. Bit naff on the explosion effects. One of Rob's faves. At Orwell underscore MFC said, A post-9-11 movie about a government staging a terror attack on its own people felt very pointed at the time, and I applauded the Wachowski's boldness. Nowadays, a film about using a pandemic they helped foster to install right-wing autocrats feels damn near prescient. I only wish they had filmed V's vaudeville routine from the graphic novel, even as a deleted scene. I would have loved to see Hugo ham it up even more in that suit and hat. At Wizard underscore Matt said, One of the best comic book movies and proof you don't have to follow the book exactly to still have a great story. At Cut underscore to the underscore Chase said, Favourite film? In a more expansive view, this film goes through so many emotions that at the end you're sat engrossed with goosebumps as the final overture plays out. All parts of this film came together perfectly, even though it missed my favourite part of the novel. At Simon underscore Exton said, I prefer the original graphic novel, but this is still a wonderfully powerful film. 
damn it, now I'm going to have to watch it again, which will inevitably lead to Dark City, Sin City and The Crow. After that, it's a tiny step to searching out my Susie and the Banshees and Cure albums. Then bingo, my gothy past is back to haunt me. I'm blaming you if Halloween ends up involving black nail varnish, eyeliner and snake bite. At Vixen Vich said, Oh dang, one of my favourite movies. What could I even put in a tweet? Everything about it is incredible and it adapts the source material in such a perfect way. Makes the story relevant to when it was released and somehow even more relevant now. At the Peter Briggs, this is Peter Briggs, the writer of Hellboy, by the way. He said, remember that scene in V for Vendetta when V puts on all the masks on the tied up guys in the armed police hostage situation? Remember that scene in the later Dark Knight when Joker puts all the masks on the tied up guys in the armed police hostage? Hey, wait a minute. At Geek Salad Radio said, I know it's a cliche, but the movie unfortunately doesn't scratch the surface of the graphic series. There is a scary depth and richness of so many of the supporting characters that couldn't be covered in a two-hour movie. I task HBO to do for V what they did for Watchmen. And finally, at Sean Geek Podcast said, This movie is pure genius. It draws you in and doesn't let go. In some ways different than the book, in some ways better. We have nothing, no comments on Instagram or Facebook uh, this time round. Uh, but thank you to everyone uh, on Twitter for your comments. This movie is kind of set sometime around now. Some say 2020 specifically, and some kind of say mid to late 2020s. But with a pandemic wreaking havoc around the world and politicians using or denying the pandemic to gain power, uh, police violence against peaceful protesters, the killing of innocent people such as George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and the rise of white supremacists and the inability for certain leaders to denounce white supremacy, it's no wonder that it feels like it might as well be set in 2020. Society is numb right now. When Evie tells V she can't feel anything, it just summarises how we're all feeling, with millions of people infected with a virus and the deaths associated with that virus, millions unemployed, economies failing, and governments across the world struggling to contain either the virus or the public's growing animosity. We wear masks to be symbols in our own way. Choosing to protect and help others is the cause rather than vengeance and retribution. V for Vendetta warned us that our futures were bleak. It might be 14 years old, but it predicted our future like nothing else. It's actually almost like it didn't quite go far enough, which is scary. But anyway, thank you for listening to this episode. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Viva Vendetta. If you do like this episode or any other episode, take a moment to give a five-star rating and review on something like Apple Podcasts. And thank you to those who have recently given me some lovely ratings and reviews. And the other thing you can do is you can tell someone, you can tell a friend or a family member about this podcast. If you liked this episode on Viva Vendetta, you might also like... Obviously, episode 14, The Matrix, because it's a Wachowski movie and who doesn't like The Matrix? Uh, Well, I know someone who doesn't like The Matrix, (laughs) but otherwise most people do like The Matrix. Um, And the only other one that really kind of sprang to my mind was episode three on Dread. Uh, Obviously, again, uh, an adaptation of a comic book uh, set in a dystopian future. But to be honest... I don't think there is anything else that could kind of partner this. V Vendetta feels quite unique in that regard. There's not really anything else like this. But obviously, if you think that I've missed uh, an episode recommendation, then let me know. Um, so the next episode is something that had to be very quickly rescheduled in September. And I always planned to cover Black Panther in September. And then the untimely and devastating death of Chadwick Boseman happened. And it really didn't feel right for me to be talking about Black Panther so soon after his passing. And I kind of just wanted to show my respect, really, to his family and literally every Black Panther fan who was grieving. So I decided to reschedule it uh, for November. And I feel like now is a better time. I feel like the world... the movie going public still grieve Chadwick's loss but I really want to talk about this incredible movie and the incredible man behind T'Challa 
So the next episode will be on Ryan Coogler's award-winning, legacy-creating Black Panther. This is also the first full-length MCU movie on Verbal Diorama. Uh, I have done an MCU movie in the past. It was a very short episode. Uh, It was actually episode two on Captain Marvel. I don't consider it a full episode. And I felt like I wanted to go to the MCU because I love the MCU. And I wanted the first full-length episode on the MCU to be special. And you don't get much more special than Black Panther. So I'm really looking forward to talking about Black Panther, genuinely. If you want to follow me, if you want to converse with me about V for Vendetta, please do so. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. If you wish to support the show financially, you are under no obligation to do so. But if you do, it starts at $2 or £2 a month, I believe, on Patreon. So I have this thing called 20 in 2020. And I'm basically looking to get 20 patrons total. And really the reason for that is because I want to do more for patrons. Um, So I'm looking for a further seven patrons to sign up. Uh, And when I get 20 patrons, I'm going to introduce some patron exclusive episodes. So if you want to support the show, sign up on Patreon. And a massive thank you to Luke, who is a brand new patron who's done just that. He actually found me through Friends of the Podcast, the Rewind Movie Podcast. I guested on an episode of theirs for Super Mario Brothers. I have a lot of time for Super Mario Brothers, despite its many, many problems. Thank you so much to Luke for becoming a patron and for helping me get so much closer to my target. And also, obviously, thank you to the valued, vivid, vibrant, virile, virtuous, voracious patrons of Verbal Diorama, Simon E, Sade, Hadiel, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike and Griff. I see of no reason why they should ever be forgot. I have a merch store. It's at teespring.com slash store slash verbal diorama. You can buy hoodies, t-shirts, mugs. With Christmas coming up, maybe you want to buy someone a verbal diorama mug or a t-shirt. That would be nice. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com if you want to say hi or if you want to give me any feedback. And I write bits for Simon Brew, previous guest of this podcast from Ghostbusters 2016. Um, So I write bits for him in his magazine, uh, Film Stories magazine, and I also write articles for filmstories.co.uk. So yeah, go check that out. And finally, beneath this mask, there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask, there is an idea. And ideas are bulletproof. Bye. Movies you know, movies you don't